Hello and welcome to How to Launch an Industry, brought to you by Marku and Aurora, bridging the gaps between business, science, and consumers in cannabis and psychedelics. I am Dr. Jehan Marku, your lead moderator for today, and I am joined, as usual, by my favorite chemist and business partner, Dr. Nigam Aurora. Hello, Nigam. Hello, everyone. Also joining us is Dr. Amber Wise, the science director at Medicine Creek Analytics. Hello, Amber. Hi, everybody. How's it going? All right. Nice to, you know, it was nice having you live in Mendocino, but, you know, this virtual thing works too. Um, also, I'd like to welcome Dr. Jackie Von Salm, Chief Science Officer at Solera. I believe this is your fourth or fifth time on the podcast. Yes, becoming a regular. Hello. And joining us for the first time is Dr. Jeff Chen, co-founder and CEO of Radical Science. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Awesome. Great to have everyone here. Well, listener, we have a fun show for you today. First up, we're going to play a little game to test your knowledge about Prop 122 in Colorado, which could legalize many aspects of a nascent psychedelics industry. For our second segment, Dr. Nigam Aurora will start a discussion about non-psychedelic psychedelics, an article that was published in Nature. And for our final segment, Dr. Amber Wise will lead a discussion about a peer-reviewed article on the effects of cannabis on endocannabinoid levels. Okay, we'll be right back in 30 seconds with today's game. We're back. Welcome to today's game, where we're playing for the grand prize of expanding science. Uh, so today's topic is Colorado Proposition 122. It is the decriminalization, regulated distribution, and therapy program for certain hallucinogenic plants and fungi initiative. And it's on the ballot in Colorado as a state statute for vote on November 8th of 2022. Presently, there's mixed support with a little over 36% supporting it and over 40% opposed to it. The rest is undecided or part of a margin of error for the survey. So what would this bill do? It would define certain psychedelic plants um, as natural medicines, including things like DMT, ibogaine, and psilocybin, um, excluding peyote. It would decriminalize personal use, possession, growth, and transport of natural persons for persons over 21 and it would create the regulated natural medicine access program for licensed healing centers administer to administer sort of these medicine services it doesn't create you know special categories for lsd derivatives or like allow sex therapists to prescribe lsd and mdma for treatment sessions or anything like that um, it's very very straight and narrow so however opposition to this has been pretty fierce as well as support so natural medicine colorado is sponsoring this initiative, and the committee reported $3.99 million in contributions, um, with most of it coming from a PAC. So of the $3.99 million in contribution, I want to ask my panelists, how much do you think was spent? All of it, some of it, you could say $1.3 million, $2.1 million, $0.03 million, whatever you think was actually spent. Um, according to Ballotpedia, uh, please phrase your answer as a number with two decimal places. <laughs> uh, 
All right. So I'm going to leave it there for a second for you guys to ask questions or discuss. Yeah, I have just a quick question. Uh, when can you put some dates on it? So they raised three point nine nine million dollars when and spent by for when? this uh, for this initiative spent as of today. Spent as of today. Uh-huh. Or that's they have that many contributions as of today, and how much have they spent is a question. Yeah, yeah, and the, the 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 voting on the bill in a matter of weeks. Is this a voter initiative bill? So like it's this, on the ballot. And it's yeah, not it's a on the ballot. Bill. Yeah, okay. so this is a initiated uh, state statute. So it's on the ballot in Colorado. People are people are going to be voting on this on November eighth. So there's still a couple weeks when since we're recording this before November 8th. I don't know. I guess we they come out pretty quick, but um, there's still some time to spend some money on ads. Uh, <laughs> so according to Ballotpedia at on on whatever date this is at whatever time it is, <laughs> timestamp. Um, Only a shockingly yeah. little amount has been spent. So, uh, yeah. So, so Jeff, you think a, a shockingly little amount has been spent uh, well, for the, the contrary, supporters? Yeah. yeah so, <laughs> what what would be a sh- like a quarter of a million dollars? Like, yeah, yeah, say a quarter of a million bucks. Oh All wow! Right. What are they What are they going to do with the rest of it? They're just They're just raising it. What are they? Yeah, they're just holding <laughs> it. Um, I like. Right. I don't. You know, I don't know if I agree with that, but I like um, interesting lines of thought. So that there's one. All right. Is Natural Medicine Colorado the PAC? Is that the Political Action Committee? Yes, or? they are okay. an organization with that also shares the name of their own Political Action Committee that has raised a bunch of money. Do we know when most of those money came in? Because if all that money came in the last like few weeks from an unknown like major donor, then they might be overwhelmed with how to use it. That is a good. Mm. That is a good thing. The committee reported um, that the three point nine nine million came. from with 82% came from the new approach pack. Um, I'm not sure um, as of July, these figures are accurate um, according to this article as of July 1st, 20. So they've had that money for a while. I'm going to say 1.7 million. All right. Wow. As my random number to throw out there. That's a good guess. I like that guess. Because that leaves half the money for whoever still is in charge of the organization. Like you, you have things you want to do. You have condos to pay for, jets to rent. Like yeah, there's, there's <laughs> politics. You know, it's it's a, you know how this business is. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to remember what the average overhead for like nonprofits are, and I, I don't remember. But I'm gonna go ahead and guess. Uh, I was gonna guess half, um, but I think I'm gonna go less, and I'm gonna uh, nope. I'm gonna I'm gonna go just over half. I'm gonna go two point two million. Just to flesh out the scale, <laughs> and then also I think there's a thing. Um, they they raise the money for a reason. Like this is a moment, you know. I I would think if if I was them, I would just be pushing it hard because I would want it to pass. I'm not saying that's my belief. I'm saying if I was these people, um, so I'm gonna say they spent three point. One million, and I also want to tell the listener we're recording this on September. Or excuse me, uh, we're recording this on October twenty first. Are you sure? Are you sure about? <laughs> yeah, that? I'm dead sure. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so uh, we have this uh, political action committee, this group that is sponsoring 
the bill. Sorry, uh, it is you know with the help of a political action committee with the PAC, and so they are. They have raised $3.9 million, and as of the recording of this podcast, we have several guesses. We have Jeff Chen saying uh, they probably only spent a quarter million, keeping the powder dry, the war chest. Uh, Jackie, 1.7. Amber, 2.2. In the middle, maybe they spent half waiting for that big Super Tuesday push. And Nigam was saying they're going, wahoo, spend the money, $3.1 million. Well, the answer is... Nigam, you are closest with they have spent $3.3 million so far of that money, spending most of it. Good job. Good job, Nigam. I'll give you an arbitrary uh, uh, 50 points. Jeff, I liked your contrarian answer. You'll get 25 points. And, uh, you know, know, Jackie, since you guys were were halfway, I guess you could get 30 points each. So we're just going to give you guys a bunch of points. You have to keep track of them. I'm not keeping track of them. <laughs> now we're gonna go on. We're gonna go to the second question. Follow up to that one. Just a guess. How much money has the opposition raised in total? Uh, we could do prices right rules, but uh, I don't want it to be that hard. But just how much has the opposition raised in total to this bill? Ten dollars. Um, Ten dollars. So Nigam is saying Ten dollars. Is that your final answer? No, no, no. That's a joke. Um, oh, okay. Um, the opposition committee is called Protect Our Kids. Mm. Mm. So, uh, is Won't it someone think of the children? Mm-hmm. And people are spending their money to think about the children, and we will find out shortly how much they are thinking about the children with their money. So, are they spending thirty million? Three million have donations been pouring in to stop the scourge of psychedelics from ravishing communities under a regulated and strict framework. Is it free free response here? Free response. Fill in the blank. If you want me to give a ceiling on it, I will tell you it is uh, less than what the proponents or supporters of the bill have raised. Oh wow! You okay? That's super helpful. Um, so between one and three point nine million. Oh, so it's above a million. <laughs> Uh, you're giving us a rat. You're giving no, us no, a rather no. between one dollar. Oh, oh, between $1. one dollar. Yeah, I was like, it's I was like, wow, Jay Hunt. Okay, it's you're not, really giving it's us a narrow zero. window. So I don't want to give say, away too much more, but yeah, go ahead. I'm going to say uh, just to say something silly. Uh, I'm going to say four hundred and twenty thousand dollars for the opposition to psychedelics <laughs> in Colorado. That sounds about right. Yeah, some about uh, right. some donor with a sense of humor gave them four hundred twenty thousand dollars, and that was a one donor. That was it. Yeah. Yeah. Since these are prices right rules, um, I'm going to go with uh, the bicycle day instead of the 420 day of 419,000. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, Ooh Nigam, does it burn? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> well, it only burns if I lose. I'm winning right now. <laughs> There's still <laughs> two more between, guesses. There's still two more guesses. So, Amber, Jeff, closest without going over wins, or I guess, you know, if you, we'll, we'll see what happens with those rules. Um, but I, I like the competitive nature that I'm seeing here. Well, I was actually going to guess higher because you had sort of originally said the ratio of support to, um, opposition, like there was slightly more opposition supposedly according to the poll. So I was going to sort of mathematically match those numbers, but you said it was somewhat less at least sort of was maximum of what the supporters raised. So I'm going to go ahead and say 2 million. 
you know what? I'm going to guess the same number I did last time. 2.2. <laughs> Final answer. 2.2 million. All right. I'll take the same coaches last time. I'll do a dollar. A do- oh. You're doing a dollar? Lowball low ball everything. Wow. Oh, wow. I love it. Okay, so. Uh, how much has the opposition spent? Protect our kids, or how much have they raised? I'm sorry. So we have, um, we have uh, Nigam four hundred twenty thousand dollars. Jackie four hundred nineteen thousand dollars. Amber two point two million. You know, there's more people in when they poll them who are opposed to this than support it. They got to be doing something right. And Jeff Chen with one dollar. <laughs> so the opposition committee with cash and in-kind contributions, has raised a total of $936. Oh, Jeff. Oh, my God. Wow. Good job, Jeff. Wow. Talk about knowing the landscape of politics. Wow. That's impressive. So, that's... So, uh... (laughs) They that's a, high, spend that's a, a highlight of my day. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to move on to our, our final round there. I guess, Jeff, you'll get a, you get a, you get a thousand points for that. Everyone else gets 500. <laughs> uh, we're going to, you got to keep track of them. All right. So for our final, our final game here, I'm going to read three short quotes and you have to suss out from the opposition has been very active in the media, despite not having a budget out there saying things. So you have to guess which is the real quote and which one is the fake one? I'll share them with you in just one second. And in no particular order, I will read these. All right. So first quote is, Colorado is high enough. We don't need more drugs sold in our communities with easier access for our children. Number two, the costs of getting this wrong are too steep for us to proceed without understanding all the potential side effects. And number three, this is a way for rich liberals to get everyone high on their luxury drugs. So the three choices, uh, which one is the fake one is your job here. The first quote is Colorado is high enough. We don't need more drugs sold in our communities with easier access for our children. Number two, The cost of getting this wrong are too steep for us to proceed without understanding all the potential side effects, or this is a way for rich liberals to get everyone high on their luxury drugs. I'll turn it to the group. We're guessing the one that's fake. So two of them are two of them are absolutely real. And I'll even share the organization that stated them. I'll say number one is fake. Number one is fake. Colorado is high enough. Yep. All right. So Jeff Jeff is coming in hot with number one. All right. I'm going to go with number two just because it seems like the most reasonable and well-constructed sentence. Um, (laughs) And (laughs) the other two are a little, uh, I don't know what the right term I'm looking for is, maybe a little fear-mongering. Ah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, And definitely we shouldn't proceed with any drug, whether for health or for recreational use, unless we know all the side effects. Like, <laughs> um, all right, Jackie Nigam, any any thoughts? Um, you know, would someone, you know, which one strikes your fancy as being a little? Which one is not like the other? I wish it was the last one, but I feel like that's real. <laughs> Unfortunately, let's well, Jackie. That's where I'm having the same thought, but I think yeah. the last one. I actually am going to vote for the last one because. 
I've been uh, playing a bunch of games on this podcast with Jayhan, and mm-hmm. I think sounds that last like one, it sounds like something with. Jayhan would make up for a game. <laughs> I wish I could write beautiful, poetic sentences like this that captured the spirit of a nation. So yeah. um, I'm, I'm uh, sorry. I'm going to vote number three. Sorry. Go ahead, Jackie. Oh, no, that's OK. I, I think I might I might go with uh, the first one as well, along with Jeff. All right. Jackie going for number one as well. All right. Well, let's start with the costs of getting this wrong are too steep for us to proceed without understanding all the potential side effects. And that one might sound like a really big ask to understand all the potential side effects like that. Like, how could you even do that about any drug? Um, And that's because it is a big ask from Smart Approaches to Marijuana. Their executive vice president actually said that against the opposition uh, going on to say that this will just be another bad trip for Colorado. All right, let's move on to another one. So Colorado is high enough. Yes, it is the, you know, it's in the Rockies. It is tends to be very <laughs> high altitude and they don't want more drugs sold in their communities. And this is from protecting Colorado's kids, oh, which, means, with <laughs> which means... That this is a way for which liberals to get everyone high on their luxury drugs was actually made up by me. So <laughs> Nigam was able to sniff that out like a truffle hound. There's still hope in the world. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. There were some really great quotes. These were hard to choose from. My favorite one is one from the uh, the Spring Gazette, which talks about people on street corners hallucinating and talking to the sky as uh, opposition to it. Um, but it's very interesting debate there. We'll see what happens. So let's see. That means uh, Nigam got one right. Um, you know, I think I think Jeff Chen should win it, getting that uh, funding on the nose. The closest everyone was off by like hundreds of thousands of dollars, except for him. So well, beginner's luck. <laughs> All right. All right. We're going to move on to segment two. and We'll be right back after a short break. In Oregon, we're actively grappling with the question of how to responsibly and ethically bring entheogens, or psychedelics, back into society. As Oregon psilocybin services come online in the coming months, we at the Sheree Eckert Foundation are working to raise funds and offer scholarships to help address the question of access and financial need. Part two of the foundation is to directly subsidize or help cover the costs of psilocybin services. We hope you'll learn more at the Shri Eckert Foundation, shrieckert.org. And we're back. Welcome to the non-peer-reviewed portion of the show where we peruse the popular science literature. And today, Dr. Nigam Arora is going to be sharing an article about taking the trip out of psychedelic medicine perhaps the fun out of functional medicine too. I'm not sure, but uh, Nigam, I'm eager to hear about this article. Absolutely. So the article is entitled Taking the Tripping Out of Psychedelic Medicine, and it was published in Nature. So this article is about the boom in psychedelics pharmacology over the last five years, and we've seen some very interesting projects coming out of it. Uh, It's an exciting time for both 
research into traditional psychedelics as well as novel molecules in the space. And it's at a really interesting phase where we've seen this research building over a few years, but we're getting to early clinical trials with some of these things and starting to really find out how, how it's going to work. So uh, psychedelics have variable effects. The article describes them as dirty drugs due to their promiscuity with uh, serotonin receptors and some other uh, receptors, which um, if folks are interested in that, listen to uh, the last episode live from Mendocino, where we discuss the psychedelic receptorome article in detail. Um, so the effects of these psychedelics uh, are variable. Now these include things like neuronal growth and uh, potentially positive epigenetic changes uh, that may be responsible for improvement in mental health conditions, which is a big part of how these are becoming popularized because of the positive effects of these studies. But there's other effects of psychedelics like hallucinatory or mystical experiences, which could be good or bad as we've dissected on prior episodes and um, the interaction with uh, receptors that are associated with cardiotoxic effects. So it's a little bit of a mixed bag when you look at it holistically. Uh, essentially, researchers and companies are trying to understand and map uh, the way these class of molecules interact with uh, serotonin receptors so they can get the desired qualities they want and eliminate the undesired effects. So while the article's flagship headline is taking the tripping out of psychedelics, uh, which refers to maintaining neuroplasticity, inducing aspects of the drug while limiting uh, hallucinatory or the traditional high effect of the psychedelic. Um, that's not the only alteration that these uh, researchers are seeking. So, for example, uh, there's major effort from multiple companies to limit cardiotoxic effects, which I personally applaud. And there is... Um, other variations, like uh, there's mention in the article of an LSD-like experience that takes one hour rather than six to 12. Um, so, you know, we can dig into that later. I think that's there's just a lot there in that one sentence. But um, anyways, this is all being done through uh, thoughtful drug design and alteration of these chemical structures. So uh, one thing that I also found most fascinating about the article was along this path of research, uh, a lot of these labs are building tools. Uh, they're not just saying, okay, let's make this drug molecule. They're building tools to assess uh, how this um, realm of receptors is interacting and, and using those uh, tests or those fingerprints to assess drugs down uh, the line. So like uh, the Olson's lab, Cyclite, we reviewed previously on the show, and there's multiple mention of uh, fingerprinting a psychedelics action on a group of receptors uh, in the article. So this is all very fascinating stuff. And at this point, uh, I would be remiss to not pass the mic to our very own Dr. Jackie Von Salm, who is quoted in this article and is uh, leading efforts at her own company, Silera, on making um, some novel molecules in this area. So uh, Jackie, uh, in the article, you mentioned uh, fine tuning the therapeutic window. Uh, can you share a little bit with us about what that means uh, so far as your work and just tell us a little bit about the research you're doing. Yeah. So <clears throat> I, I guess I, the first thing I do want to touch on is as soon as I read the dirty drugs comment, I actually was really frustrated because <laughs> that was definitely not coming from a quote of mine. Um, I am a big believer in 
um, sort of that interconnectedness of, you know, almost like the symphony of different receptors and different things being hit similar to almost like musical notes. And I think sometimes um, our obsession with one ligand, one receptor has actually led to a lot of uh, issues and side effects. So I, not a huge fan of that one first, um, but second, more on the therapeutic window in uh, what she was actually quoting me on when I said that was more so of even just the current psychedelics themselves, not even necessarily the derivatives. So, um, you know, at my company, we do work on derivatives as well, but we also had a big focus on figuring out what indications you really want to target and whether or not you actually need hallucinogenic doses of the psychedelics to target that indication. So in our case, DMT, let's say if we're going after something like anxiety, a lot of psychedelics in high doses are known to induce anxiety initially. And then later, sometimes they can help over time. But there might also be opportunity for doing really low doses, not necessarily a microdose that does have a definition, um, but just lower doses where it might be subperceptual or considered less hallucinogenic, but you're still going to see positive benefits. So when I really talk about the therapeutic window, I'm I'm targeting quite a few companies out there already doing clinical trials on just doses that I feel like were sort of selected from random forums or like Arrowhead or something. And they were just like, well, we saw a lot of people out there doing these things. And so we just kind of went with a dose and decided to move forward with it. So um, that that's really what I was trying to harp on a little bit there was just really figuring out what some of those doses should be for, and again, for specific indications, because they're all different. Thanks. Uh, thank you for sharing that. And, uh, you know, uh, one thing that the article mentioned where you're saying like just being sourced from Arrowhead, I've actually heard a lot of researchers say they've done that. And, uh, even in this article, uh, David Olson, who's a very prominent, uh, researcher in the space, uh, is saying that he literally went to Reddit forums and looked at, uh, psychedelic compounds that were, uh, deemed as duds psychedelic duds because they didn't make people trip but he said okay let me just go start with that and see if they induce neuroplasticity um <laughs> so like and taking t cal and just saying okay well what did shulgin decide didn't really work out <laughs> or exactly. in some cases though there are ones where he is very specific about how horrible the experience is and yet there are definitely companies working on those exact derivatives. And I'm like, you got to read it because he sounds like it was really bad. Maybe we shouldn't make those. <laughs> well, and uh, yeah. Okay. Well, I, uh, I don't, I don't want to tangent. Sorry, yeah. I want to, no, no, no. <laughs> thank, thank you, Jackie. Uh, really. Um, it's so cool to uh, be able to discuss this article with you that you were quoted in. Thanks. So um, my next question is for uh, Jeff. So, you know, Jeff, you're heavily involved with research with doing uh, clinical trials, kind of a new version of clinical trials. So your company, Radical Science, uh, I, you're involved in some other health technology things. So I wanted to get uh, your perspective on the the need uh, for this kind of thing, the non-psychedelic psychedelic or the otherwise tuned psychedelic experience. Uh, is there a need in the patient community, in the physician community? Um, you know, uh, and even some things like the cardiotoxic effects, I think, are just obvious. You know, I'm, I'm just very curious for your perspective on that. Yeah, I would say that my viewpoint on all this is that they're not mutually exclusive. And I think you will, what you're going to see is a future 
where you will have uh, psychedelics that have an alteration in consciousness that will be synthetic and done in a highly regulated medical setting. You will have other psychedelics that maybe do not have that mystical experience, also prescribed by a doctor, used in a very regulated medical setting. And because of all of these largely local and statewide initiatives to legalize access or improve access to naturally occurring psychedelics, you're going to see that as a bucket as well, and each one having their pros and cons. You might find that the mystical experience, maybe as a whole, is part of the therapeutic effect. Maybe it's not all of it. Or you might find for certain conditions, you need that mystical experience, um, as well as if you're thinking about certain things that you know might not be diagnosed as a pathologic disease, but it's still someone somewhere where someone wants to improve an area of their life. Uh, you're not gonna. No one's gonna prescribe you a non-mystical psychedelic for that because that's the, the, psych, the mystical aspects are what you need for that kind of personal transformation. And then the biggest counterbalance to all of this, in my mind, is the provision of naturally occurring psychedelics by regions and states. Let's say that you don't fall into one of the, especially early on, one of the narrow FDA indications for which you could use something like MDMA or psilocybin, which are the next two psychedelics or the first two psychedelics to be you know, recognize as, as drugs in the coming years, uh, well, fine. You could go access uh, naturally occurring legal psychedelics, hopefully through your state program in certain states. Uh, or let's say that you're, it's, the costs are exorbitant, your insurance doesn't cover it, or you're uninsured. Again, you can access these other things. And what's nice about leaving that state-level access there is it really serves as a rapid way, in my mind, a rapid way to learn the best way to use and the, the most broad applications uh, for these tools. And you can also leverage when you're using a natural psychedelic, you can also leverage all the historic kind of indigenous knowledge. And yes, some of it sits on Arrowhead, but again, how did human beings get anything done for, for tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years? It was kind of observation and pattern recognition until we invented a scientific method over the last several hundred years. So it's not to discount all that ancient knowledge that sits there. So in my mind, all of them have pros and cons. And I think all of them coexisting is probably the best for society. Um, and then there's also a question of timing and sequence. Obviously, it's going to be the things like MDMA and psilocybin, um, who that are furthest to being FDA approved for the, some novel synthetic psychedelic that has no mystical experiences. You're looking at a solid, you know, five to 10 years before it'll ever be commercially available because you're really starting at, you know, in vitro cellular work. And then again, with the kind of uh, the, the balance of the states legalizing their own products, that might be the most rapid way to ensure access and, and then the broadest, most equitable sense as well. Totally. And uh, kind of what I'm hearing from your response is that you favor the kind of options because one thing may not work for. That's exactly everyone. it. Yeah. No, I can, I can appreciate that. And um, I can understand my question is like, kind of a tricky one. What is the patient perspective? And it's like, well, there's a lot of different patients out there. It's a lot of different conditions. Um, so no, I think that's great. And, and, um, and, and we'll see how it turns out. So, um, my next question is for, uh, Jehan. So Jehan, when I read this article, um, and that thing about, um, that I already mentioned about, uh, Dr. Uh, David Olson speaking about the psychedelic duds and how he actually sourced them. And it reminded me, um, 
of some stuff you and I've talked about, Jehan. And I wanted to get your perspective on, have you ever had this experience in your, you know, long history working in uh, the pharmacology of, uh, you know, cannabinoids and other drugs that there's been a shifting perspective on a certain compound over time? Like, oh, that compound's not useful. And then later that shifts. Can you speak on that a little bit? I think that happens all the time, um, especially with cannabinoids like THC and, and anything from the plant, schedule one. And that's what started people synthesizing compounds. So you didn't need a DEA license to work with them. You know, John Huffman and others, a JWH series, that was all created as like, well, that's not a cannabinoid yet. And then, you know, slowly these things got added to these definitions because THC was seen as like not having value because of the high. And so it actually led researchers to develop antagonists, right? They're like, well, if the receptor makes people hungry and happy and we can get rid of those two things, we'll have a great diet medication and it won't cause, you know, euphoria or any rewarding of properties. And, you know, you did have some opposite effects, including the opposite of being hungry, which is not being hungry, and the opposite of, of um, what we could call being happy or high, which was a sort of a dysphoric um, tendencies. So there were suicidal type thoughts and the drug was withdrawn from the market pursuing this. There have been other attempts uh, that we really haven't seen happen yet with, say, fungal medicines or fungal psychedelics. Um, and that's what they've done with THC to sort of tame it was use CBD in large amounts in a one-to-one ratio or greater than one-to-one ratio in order to get the sort of benefits of THC without um, the trip of THC uh, or the euphoric effects. Um, so we really haven't seen people like being like, oh, is there a norcelosin metabolite in the plant that, or sorry, in the in the fungus or mushroom that uh, we could use to bounce out the effects of psilocin or, or psilocybin. Um, so I think this always happens, you know, and, and I think really when people are creating these new chemical entities, they're giving birth to new drugs. If they're creating like a novel class, that, that drug is going to be born. And then for the first five years, 10 years of its life, as I think kind of like Jeff talked about, it's going to figure out its purpose. Drugs always start off as like one thing and become another. Rogaine, hypertension medicine, side effect, hair growth. That's not the side effect. That's the effect. Then there was uh, Viagra, hypertension medicine. It had a peculiar side effect in all the male participants in the study. That's not a side effect. That's the effect. So I think this just constantly happens. And this is like how we know kind of science and clinical research is working to inform our decisions is that hopefully as time goes on, there's less stigma and superstition and more data-driven areas. Because again, some side effects are other populations, therapeutic effects. And like people think about like one last example, cannabis and dry mouth. A lot of people don't think that's great. It can be bad for your teeth, but for people with Lou Gehrig's disease or ALS, it's a welcome side effect of cannabis is having a dry mouth because if you're paralyzed, you you know, you can choke on your own saliva. You can have other issues as well. So again, I think it really comes down to some of these definitions. Well, that response was better than I was even hoping for. So um, <laughs> thank you, Jayhan. I think uh, I was like hoping for a lot. I thought you were going to talk about CBD and you talked about like seven other potent things. That's that's not even <laughs> so um, that was great. Uh, so well, CBDs in everything. I didn't want to put it in my comments, you know, <laughs> as 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 we like to say here on the show, CBD my foot. So uh, my last question <laughs> is, and if you don't understand that, send me an email. Um, if uh, or so, my last question uh, is for Amber. So, 
Amber, uh, you have a deep experience working in a lot of different areas in chemistry. You, you've been, uh, you know, uh, you're a prominent cannabis chemist these days in the analytical space, but, um, you've also worked in fundamental areas with, uh, cell structures and these kind of things. So I'm, I'm curious from your, from your broad, uh, research experience, what do you think about these, uh, efforts to study or, or develop methods for fingerprinting or molecular signature associated with psychedelics action on these receptor systems? Is that a useful research tool? Is that a, just an academic exercise? What, what do you think about that? Uh, no, I actually had to <clears throat> go back and look at the article to see what they were, what you were referring to. Cause I was thinking of molecular fingerprint as something totally different, but I think to clarify for listeners, what they're referring to or what you're referring to Nigam is um, some, some other researchers that were um, highlighted in this article we're looking at essentially downstream signals. Um, it looks like, I, I don't, I'm not familiar with this research, but it looks like they were measuring genetic changes and epigenetic changes after psychedelic treatment. So not looking at measures in blood or of different compounds or, or things like that, but actually looking at other types of downstream signaling in the body. And as, as, a, as, a, as a sign of um, these neurodendrites being grown, um, and it's kind of um, coincidental. I don't think you knew this about my previous um, postdoc work, but I did work um, on some risk assessment projects that were looking at measuring downstream signals, or sorry, upstream mm. signals of, of bad effects. And so I think this is a really interesting way to look at these compounds because, um, you know, fundamentally, uh, sometimes measuring effects are very difficult to do logistically. Right, mm. these things are happening in living people's brains. Those are very difficult to study, um, if at all. Right, what's going on at a molecular level? So finding signals that are not just happening live, but maybe a day later, maybe a week later, maybe a month later, and and some other easier to test um, tissue in your body, I think is a great idea. Having said that, they're cumbersome. They're time consuming. You know, is that really, is that connected? Um, it, it sounds like these researchers have found that connection and, and verified it, but, you know, it's always questionable, like, did that, you know, psychedelic use actually cause that epigenetic effect or was it something else? Mm. Um, so I think it's an interesting route to pursue for sure. I mean, I think everybody's comments have been going down a similar pathway of saying, you know, we can't put all psychedelics in the same bucket. They you know, there's different um, uses, different applications, different molecules, different receptors. Um, so, you know, every time we have these conversations, it's always complicated in, in air quotes because because of those things. It's not just one system and one one cascade effect. So I think we should absolutely be looking at all kinds of different ways to measure effectiveness and outcomes and you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. I'm excited to, to continue to follow this for sure. And, and shockingly, Amber, you did not give us a straight yes or no on my questions. So <laughs> on a very <laughs> simple topic, how, how, how dare you? Um, well, th- 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 thank you, Amber. Um, yeah, I think that's a very kind of thoughtful dissection of it. And, um, 
you know, I'll need to read this for a third time, but I think they're doing some interesting things with these like kind of signatures that aren't just epigenetics. I'm familiar with the epigenetics thing, and I think that's that's smart and that's a great way to track it. But I think it's a little a little broader than that. So um, just before we run out of HLI time, I just wanted to open it to the group. Any any further comments on uh, on this article or on this topic from anyone? I think one thing that's always interesting to think about and realize is that, you know, we're leveraging molecular psychedelics to create, again, if you think the mystical experience is important, to create an altered state of consciousness. And in that altered state of consciousness, you can have a therapeutic effect. Um, And it's particularly true of things like PTSD, where there might be some, you have to kind of revisit some memory and be able to process it. Um, Obviously, there's other applications that may be much more uh, that may not require the mystical effects as much, you know, addictive disorders and, and things like that, right? Severe refractory depression. But one interesting thing is just altered states of consciousness can be achieved in a variety of other ways. So I often am also intrigued at what the world looks like when we have, say, digital psychedelics. Maybe it's a sequence mm. of lights and neurofeedback and, you know, some neuroacoustic track that mimics a mystical experience. And you talk about a highly scalable uh, solution that doesn't need to go through the same uh, political controversy or even the drug development route. Um, so that, those things like that get me interested. So for me, a psychedelic is just anything that can induce an altered state of consciousness. And pharmaceutical psychedelics uh, are one pretty reliable method uh, of doing that. Yeah, I think it's always a good point to bring up that there are a lot of different ways that we can actually achieve neuroplasticity. Um, it's really not only unique to psychedelics, it does come from other non-pharmaceuticals as well as some pharmaceuticals actually that are non-hallucinogenic, like the triptans. I mean, it just really depends on what you're looking at and really, yeah, what you, I guess, want the outcome to be. But I think it's, it's just always, yeah, good to keep in mind that it can happen from other ways. It's not always just from a really intense hallucinogenic experience and sometimes it is. And so I think it's just true to your point of everyone also being unique and it also depending on what, what you're really targeting. Absolutely. And, uh, I just want to shout out in, in that vein, there was, um, we did a prior episode called, uh, meditation and music as psychedelics. And it was focused on that topic. Um, just, just exactly that whole realm of it's, it's not just about a drug, uh, these kind of, um, neuronal changes or perception changes can be achieved in a lot of ways. So, well, um, thanks for all your, uh, comments on that topic. Uh, we're out of time for that segment. Uh, so we'll be right back after a short message for rapid fire science. Hello, this is Jehan Marku. If you're looking for life sciences consulting in cannabis and psychedelics, look no further than Marku and Aurora. At our firm, we provide expert services from experimental design to technical project management and investor due diligence. If it has to do with the fundamentals and novel drug areas, we're your go-to. Reach out to us at marku-aurora.com to schedule a discovery call today. Remember that the application of scientific approaches and properly gathered data can give you an edge towards reaching your goal.
And we're back. Welcome to Rapid Fire Science, where this is the peer-reviewed portion of the show where we discuss the scientific literature and here to share an article I'm very interested to hear about, about cannabis and the and endocannabinoid levels is Dr. Amber Wise. Amber, take it away. Thanks. Well, uh, a couple weeks ago, maybe less than that, uh, Nigam called and asked if I had an article to discuss for this episode. And I always got something that I'm reading. And um, I chose this partly because I I do a lot of work with policymakers um, at the state and, and slowly starting at the federal level. And And folks are actually starting to acknowledge that there might be some medical application for cannabinoids, except the DEA, of course, Um, (laughs) and and that people are taking cannabis products for health reasons, like with or without a doctor's supervision. Um, There's obviously prescription um, medicine in the U.S., Epidiolex, um, that has a certain level of medically relevant cannabinoids, but we've all seen CBD products at just regular stores um, in in every state. Um, and, and jurisdictions are grappling with how these types of products uh, should be regulated at, at lower um, sort of non-therapeutic levels or non-psychotropic amounts of cannabinoids. Um, if you have a CBD product and it's full spectrum, there's probably going to be a tiny bit of THC in there. So if we allow CBD products, do we allow a teensy bit of THC? So you know, when are, when are these things considered medically relevant? Are they safe? All of, the, all of these questions. And One of my most recent policy advisory adventures, I'll say, was on a task force here in Washington state um, to decide kind of just this situation. Um, We're supposed to make recommendations on how many milligrams of CBD we should be allowed to have in food. This is completely outside, you know, sort of adult recreational use, just sodas you could buy at the grocery store. Um, But alongside that, you know, we have to make science-based decisions on THC, trace levels of THC, or, or other types of, of compounds that we may or allow or not. So where do we draw this line between medically relevant, um, uh, potentially unsafe, right, the need to have a doctor's you know, supervision versus something we feel safe about having on a store shelf? And it's not really what this article is getting at, but people are constantly, people being policymakers, scientists, people off the street, they're constantly saying, we need more data, we need more data. And so this was actually a paper I found that had to push the needle a little bit in that direction of getting some more data on safety of use of, of cannabinoid products. So, so giving that little background, um, this paper is entitled, Herbal Cannabis Use is Not Associated with Changes in Levels of Endocannabinoids and Metabolic Profile Alterations Among Older Adults. And there'll be a link to it in the show notes. Um, but this is research out of Ben-Gurion University and Hebrew University of Jerusalem in Israel. And it looked at a cohort of patients that are over 60 who are using cannabis to treat hypertension. The patients weren't using cannabis to treat their high blood pressure necessarily. These researchers published that in a separate paper, but they were using cannabis for pain management, uh, mostly Parkinson's-related pain and neuropathic pain. Um, So the paper, the authors measured five naturally occurring endocannabinoids inside the patient's bodies before and after three months of cannabis treatments. They also measured a lot of other biomarkers, uh, blood pressure, cholesterol, and triglyceride levels, a bunch of measurements, urea, creatinine, insulin, ions, there's a whole bunch. Um, And we can dig a little bit more into some of the details in our discussion, but Generally, to summarize, um, for older folks with high blood pressure, they found that taking these cannabis 
medicines over the course of three months were generally safe. Um, there's some caveats. Uh, there's only 15 people that qualified for this study. Um, there were 38 originally recruited. I guess 26 of them completed the study, but they only had data for 15, and I didn't really find a reason for that. Um, and then the median dose of THC per day was 22 milligrams. The median dose of CBD was 30 milligrams a day. Um, and some users used cannabis twice a day, some were once a day, some were three or more times a day. Um, and some, some of them were using oral tinctures or oils, and some of them were inhaling as well. So having said all that, um, I kind of wanted to kick this off uh, with Jehan. Um, so they measured all these endocannabinoid levels. So we, as listeners probably know, humans have endocannabinoids circulating within us that regulate all different things in our body. And these are the same molecules that bind to the receptors that cannabis binds to. Um, so Jehan, do you think measuring these levels of endocannabinoids and then all the other biomarkers they looked at, is that a good measure of safety for medical use? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, maybe that's not a good sign if I laugh when I get that question. Um, you know, so when we talk about like metabolic markers or, or metabolic risk profile, you know, usually people are talking about this in terms of like obesity and glucose levels, um, you know, the, these a cluster of conditions that occur together that kind of predict an outcome. Um, I, I, at this point, based on what is provided in this study and some things I've read elsewhere, I don't think, um, based on what the authors are saying, that this is a good measure, like a definitive measure of OTC safe use of cannabinoids. Uh, because, you know, when I'm looking at this data, the, the research seems to go both ways. They're like, ah, this is safe for people. You know, 2AG uh, goes up with uh, consumption of CBD or goes and these ones go down, but it's safe. It's like, wait, there were changes, but they're, but it's fine. And, and so I really don't think they have enough information to kind of make those claims. I mean, nobody died that we know of took in the study. We don't know of any like severe cardiac um, situations. Um, here, but but I guess I w you know if I was getting my endocannabinoids tested, I think this is a it's not a one and done thing with endocannabinoid system, and anything can change endocannabinoid levels. I mean, they should have had a control arm that was watching like scary movies or erotic films. I, I think it was erotic films in the study where they showed people that, and their endocannabinoid levels changed. So like, you know, uh, I think that we would need. I'd want to see several measures of endocannabinoid levels over time. Also seeing things like what time of day they were testing them. Um, were they fasting? Uh, more information about um, how it correlates to maybe BMI um, or obesity and things like that. Because we do know that in people who are overweight, they already have elevated endocannabinoid levels. And, and, and it's not all the time, but but that's a general kind of principle. So um, I, I, I guess like without understanding the true baseline of the ECS in people, anandamide, 2-AG, PEA, OEA, and the list goes on, it's really hard to say, oh, this person has this profile of endocannabinoids uh, that's perfectly safe for them to use cannabis because indication for cannabis risks is based on a cluster of things that could have to do with the cardiac system, but also could do with mental health as well. So, you know, I would hesitate to use this as a definitive marker, um, per se, of um, cannabis safety. 
I think it's promising. Um, and I think that, uh, again, to convince me, there would just had to be more measurements of endocannabinoids along the way uh, for for me to really like, I think, the, these values. Because many of the values were had extremely large ranges. Um, you know, it's like 19 plus or minus 13. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a bit of a range there. <laughs> Yeah, I was wondering the same thing. Like, there's some pretty big outliers, and is the the high number outlier before the test the same as the high outlier after the test? Is that the same patient, or it's, you it's know, a, what's a the variability? Great question. Theory? Yeah, 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 yeah. Are those the same people, and they're just like really tense, um, or or is there a subpopulation <laughs> of people with like cardiac issues that have elevated cannabinoids? Maybe there's a subpopulation of people with hypertension that just have naturally elevated endocannabinoids because you know, like some people tr- like. Um, people who are exposed to the World Trade Center in New York have elevated, I think, anandamide and 2-AG over normal population. And it's just from dealing with, the, they think, the trauma. It's like the body's response. Like something isn't right here, so the endocannabinoid system is ramping up to try and bring things back or create homeostasis. Um, so I think, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting foray into this field that they're doing, but um, I, I, it leaves far more questions than answers. <laughs> All right. Well, that's fair. Um, I did want to bring Jeff into the conversation. uh, And I mentioned that not all the patients, so all 15 patients that made it into the study, uh, they didn't even take the same form of cannabis. Um, Some of them, I think, had some oil-based tinctures. It was a little unclear. um, and, And definitely some of them inhaled Can you speak to the implications of of the outcomes in that regard at all? Um, Yeah, I think, I believe some did smoke, but they did not inhale. Um, That's what they testified in front of. Oh, I heard that one. Um, So there's a lot of implications there. I mean, the first thing you have to understand is that every form factor, and when I say form factor, I mean a, you know, flower that you can bust, oil that you inhale through a vaporizer, an edible, a gummy that you chew and swallow versus like a liquid drink with cannabinoids in it. Um, each one of these is going to number one, have a different amount of absorption. And particularly when it comes to things that you ingest by mouth, it's going to go through a transformation in your liver and you might be creating other metabolites. Uh, some of which we understand, but others we, we really don't quite understand uh, the implications of that. So a, what, what is, Confounding further, um, the results of this study is that you had so many different ways that people were ingesting these products. We can't really know if there was any consistency into the percentage of cannabinoids that actually made it into their bloodstream. Because again, differential absorption with every single one of these form factors, aka you hear you know routes of administration. You might also hear that delivery method. These are all kind of interchangeable. They're describing the same concept. So not only is the percent absorption different. But the constituents that actually make it into the bloodstream are different too. Some might have been transformed by your liver into different metabolites that then may have different impacts. So not only was the sample size, unfortunately, pretty small, but with this variation in the products that they used, that probably was introducing a lot of noise um, into this as well. But hey, what's what's nice is, you know, despite all of this, um, you know, again, not seeing that that systemic elevation and endocannabinoid levels, um, in some ways you could say is, is a little, you know, reassuring, but I think we're still just scratching the surface of what is a normal endocannabinoid level? How does it change day to day, week to week, month to month? 
and what is normal for for you and me maybe you know it's, it's almost maybe like heart rate variability where it's like yeah there's a massive range but what's more important is like what is your baseline now versus like what are aberrations and alterations to it yeah absolutely sort of related to that i guess um you know they they did have a, a number of different um outcomes measurements that that they had and we've already sort of covered, you know, that it wasn't all just no change. There were correlations of, of endocannabinoid levels and, and a couple other biomarkers. Um, was there any of those correlations that stuck out to you at all, Jackie, or, or you thought was interesting? Um, any comments on that regard? <laughs> no, not really. I, I actually very much agree with both, you know, Jahan and Jeff when it comes to really the standard deviation of, you know, some of the data points. I think that was really where they weren't able to make claims because really it comes down to like significance. Where was there maybe that significant change versus just sort of moderate or minor changes that you can't, you're not really sure how to account for. Um, I think that when it comes down to having an average of what someone's actual, you know, endocannabinoid levels are and everything they've been mentioning. I think we just don't have a good hold on what that is. So then trying to really talk about any differentiation or changes throughout, if that's not really even remotely standardized, it's very difficult to perform a study like this and have some kind of reference to really even go back to. Um, that's, that's a huge thing just in science in general, right? Is just making sure you have some kind of stable point of maybe reference to really tie it back. Um, I do think that it's, it's interesting because they do talk quite a bit, obviously about like LDL, HDL, sort of on the cholesterol lipid kind of side of things. Um, which I always was curious when you're dealing with lipids themselves, which most of these are the actual endocannabinoids in your body, they, they're all lipids in their own rights and they all have kind of similar structures, if you will, chemical structures. So, I was always curious about when they're actually testing, whether or not you have sort of elevations or decreases. And I know there's been a lot of talk around even um, obviously obesity and other things, how that's really being affected just because these compounds themselves are altering that lipid content. Um, admittedly, I'm, I'm more on like the pharmaceutical side of creating maybe like that cannabinoid or that compound and less maybe on the, the medical side of understanding the interplay of all of those things. Um, but I've just always been curious about that in general and just what, what even is the average of where someone should fall in some of these lines and, and how would you even really be able to determine that? Um, I do think it's interesting that these were their choices for like a safety assessment when you're talking about just safety in general. I think I think personally it was uh, an additional um, paper to get out based on okay. the previous work they were doing looking at hypertension and cannabinoid use. Okay, um, okay. Is my suspicion. I don't know yeah. for sure, but based on their previous publications, um, leads me to believe this may have been some data they had laying around that might have been worthwhile gotcha. to publish. <laughs> okay, yeah, because I would, I would definitely be interested. I mean, obviously when you have a new drug and you're putting it through sort of safety panels and safety profiles, there's a lot of different things you can look at when you're trying to really assess safety. So I was just, that makes sense though. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, I appreciate what you said about not really knowing what the average level should be. And, you know, we didn't have a control. I think it was even someone else who mentioned we didn't have a control for this study. So and one of the quotes from the discussion section um, reads, first, due to the lack of control group, the causality of cannabis effects cannot be inferred, and we can only determine association. 
However, every patient served as their own control, reducing the chance of showing effects that are completely spontaneous. (laughs) Um, Personally, I didn't know what they meant by that statement. Um, Jehan, do you want to comment on that statement or something else related to the control situation or lack thereof? Sure. And I think, you know, also probably... uh, you know, Jeff, with his clinical experience, could comment a little bit on this too. But as, as I understand it from seeing it in the literature before, most of the time I see this, it's in a uh, self-controlled patient's, <laughs> it's in a case series. So normally, when you judge the effects of a drug, you have um, you know members of a group at two time points, and you compare the effects of those members of a group receiving a therapy. Um, and this is, you know, an approach that generally yields valid measures and, and valid results. Um, however, um, if, you know, if things are not randomized in the study, things are less random. That is, it's not like you go to this group, you go to that group. It, it, it's more whatever it is they did here. You might try to take additional care. But the issue is, is like these patients also have to be stable or allowed to become so to be able to measure these things. Um, so, you know, I've generally seen it only used or, or largely used in like epidemiological studies, not so much in like clinical studies of a drug's efficacy or safety. They might use, I've seen it used a lot in like perceived costs of drugs um, and things like that, um, or, or retrospective studies on, on patients who are in studies. So, you know, I think that like I agree with them at best. They can assert like start to look at associations with cannabis because I think that's largely what they found here. Not a lot of statistical significance, um, but it is kind of funny how they just sort of like drop this mic drop. Like, yeah, you know what? Each patient was their control because they have some sort of subjective experience. It's like they exposed them to rain, but some had an umbrella, so it felt like it was dry. You know, so it's just like it's really. I think it's it's. They had a lot of like weird loosey goosey statements in here like that to try and put over the top. When I think the the main takeaway from this article is that like, wow, they're studying endocannabinoids and cannabis and they're starting to dial into where these effects might be. I, I don't think that statement really added much to making me like believe that this the effects are completely spontaneous. I, I don't know, but I'm, I'm open to other opinions that could maybe inform my opinion. Yeah, I think, you know, clearly a limitation of the study is that it's, you're right, there is no uh, control group per se, there's no randomization. Um, and I'm, I suspect, you know, the way this works is it's <clears throat> it's almost like a pragmatic study where you had a bunch of patients who were prescribed medical cannabis. Hey, let's capture some blood data before they start using it. We'll let them go nuts on their own. Um, and that way it's not this really, you know, complex, expensive, uh, really controlled study. Um, but what's nice is, and I'm, I'm pretty sure this is how it played out, the pre-post data that they got before patients self-initiated cannabis usage, um, that I think that in this case actually serves as a decent, um, a decent, you know, self-control. Every patient was their own control. And it goes back to what I said was, I don't think we're anywhere close to understanding what a normal endocannabinoid level is. And just like kind of heart rate variability, it's less about yours is higher than mine. It's what is my baseline? What does it look like later? Is that a deviation that's significant? Um, so the fact that, again, despite all the limitations of the study, the fact that, that fa- the fact that we had that, I think is actually pretty interesting. Um, and, you know, not seeing dramatic uh, uh, differences 
and endocannabinoid levels when comparing each individual pre-post. Um, I think that's that's pretty interesting, and it it starts to, you know, maybe eliminate one uh, of the potential adverse effects of of uh, cannabis or cannabinoids. Um, still, there's many others that we're still teasing through, but certainly significant alterations of your endocannabinoid levels or tone. Now, the other flip side, which is interesting, is people talk about how cannabinoids are able to, uh, as a therapeutic, potentially elevate endocannabinoid levels, especially things like, you know, CBD, which might be boosting your exogenous production of endocannabinoids, as opposed to really having any sort of agonist properties at the cannabinoid receptors. So what does that do to those implications as well? Um, since it's definitely like all, like all studies, the tagline is, ah, more research is needed. Interesting. And more research is needed. So. <laughs> right. Right. And some of the, I mean, in my opinion, the average daily dose was relatively low. Um, you know, it, particularly if they were taking it two or three times over the course of the day, the doses, you know, might have been five, 10 milligrams at most of a cannabinoid. So I consider that a relatively low dose. I mean, I know that it can have therapeutic effects, but it's not a heroic dose is the term that we like to call, right? Um, so in the just remaining times, I wanted to give Nigam a chance to comment about, you know, we've talked a little bit about the low numbers and weirdness with the controls, but you know, I think in general, can we extrapolate information from this? Can policymakers use this to, to make decisions? Are you going to tell your grandma it's okay that she could use cannabis because if she has hypertension? What, what's your take home from this? So we're, the thing I've been thinking about this whole time, so when I was listening to you guys make all your comments about the paper, I was literally looking up the impact factor of this journal and the impact factor of other major journals. Um, Thanks. I did want so, to bring up the, the journal. It was Life. Uh, the title yeah. of the journal was Life. Wow. Um, the Journal of Life. <laughs> I've never published. heard of it before. <laughs> yeah, the Journal so, of Life sounds like it should have a lot of uh, sub-disciplines in it. But. It, has, um, it has a lot of game pieces. Um, anyways... <laughs> Uh, yeah. So Amber, to answer your direct question, uh, no, I don't think so. The answer to everything you asked me is no, 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 no. And no. <laughs> um, also, uh, the thing I wanted to shout out about the show, you know, we, uh, we like to discuss a variety of articles in, in different articles bring different value, right? So we like to do these critical assessments and kind of dissect things. So, um, I, I think we've done a great job of doing that. I think we could write a very thorough, uh, you know, uh, reply to the authors of this paper, maybe with some inputs. And I think there is this thing about um, let's just publish something. Let's tack a name on it. So even this name to me, I guess what I'm saying is uh, here on the show, we give praise and we give a uh, critical review as is due. So I think in this case, you know, being critical is fairly due. And um, just the title herbal cannabis use is not associated with, you know, anything. It's like, okay, well, this just is not really the requisite. I like what Jeff said. Great. The title of the paper should have said baseline endocannabinoid levels of 15 older adults. Great publish that, believe in it. Awesome. But extrapolating it beyond that and saying, talk, speaking about safety, they don't even mention drug, drug interaction in this paper. Were they taking other hypertension meds or not? Can they stop them or not? Um, and then all the other, conf the, the other thing is, um, 
man, uh, just give them a standardized product. All this. Uh, oh, man. So I could go on all day. Um, and I want to mention just about the impact factor, just to mention uh, this ranks. The impact factor of this journal is like 3.3 ish. So that ranks as like acceptable above 10 is supposed to be good and reputable. And uh, the best journals in the world are like in between 30 and 200. So um, that's another thing for our listeners who uh, want to dig into under better understanding, you know, cause there's this thing peer review, uh, even segment that's harsh. That's a little harsh. <laughs> there's definitely <laughs> journals out there where they're just niche and they have the, yeah. the hardest review boards and the most prolonged review and so detailed and so thorough. And then their impact factors like two. Yeah, not saying that about not, this one. Yeah. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> right, because guess, they're not cited as much. They're not, like if they they're get not popular cited. science or yeah. Right. Yeah, something like Under, that. Sorry, that I, was the chemical ecologist no, in me from Antarctica. No. And I'm just like, <laughs> my impact factor sometimes was not correct. No, Jackie, I I, pre- no, I appreciate your comment and I agree with the comment. The re- here's here's why I want to say this. And, and I know we're, we're running, running out of HLI time. The reason I wanted to say that as my comment is that there's this thing um, you know, especially working cannabis. Oh, it's in a peer reviewed journal. So it's golden. And, and that's, and that's simply not the case. You know, we, we need to have critical review of everything. Peer review is great, but that's not an end all be all, you know, and as Jackie highlighted, even the impact factor is not an end all be all. So I'm encouraging listeners to do what we do, you know, be critical, try to think, think for yourself and seek other experts to think about it with you, you know? So, that's that's my reply, Amber. My stretched out, nebulous reply to your question. <laughs> well, thanks. I yeah, I do um, like the fact that we don't. I mean, we highlight a lot of papers on the podcast, but they're not always because they're great, but they often lead to great discussion. Um, so so anyway, we are short on um, the time, and I'd like to to wrap this article up. Um, but it, you know, it was useful to think about you know some of these um, measurements and outcomes for sure, and. And maybe if you're a researcher, how you could do it a little bit better next time. Um, So, yeah, that's all I had for this section. Thanks. All right. Well, thank you so much, Amber. Um, You all listener, you know, that's going to wrap up our show for today. Um, Thank you for tapping, clicking or swiping or however you are listening to this podcast. Uh, we would like to thank you and also to thank our trusty audio engineer, Joe Leonardo, as well as our sponsors, artists and musicians that help make this podcast possible. So please check out the show notes for more information about all of them. 